Hey, this is Big Biology co-host Art Woods. One important note before we start the episode, Big Biology is going to be recording its second live podcast at the AAAS annual meeting in February. It's happening at 10.30 a.m. on February 15th at the Marriott Wardman Park Hotel in Washington, D.C. We'll be talking with National Science Foundation Assistant Directors Joanne Tornow and Arthur Lupia about the agency's plan to fund big ideas in 2019 and beyond. We hope to see you there. Here's the show. Last year, climate scientists working with the United Nations warned that climate change is likely to have devastating effects if governments don't act quickly to reduce carbon emissions. You probably heard about this report when it came out. It's by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it was all over the news back in October. There is a new report out about climate change, and it is not positive. The world has little more than a decade. That's how long the world's top authority on climate science says we have in order to prevent the most catastrophic results of climate change. Catastrophic climate change by the year 2030. That's just around the corner. The report predicts that an average increase in the Earth's mean surface temperature of quote-unquote, just two degrees Celsius, will kill essentially all coral reefs by the year 2100. It also predicts that by 2040, crop yields in Southeast Asia will fall by a third. Writing this report took a massive effort. Nearly 100 authors compiled information from more than 6,000 scientific sources to summarize the consensus about climate change. In short, their message was, things look bad and we need to do something major and fast. The report focuses, of course, on how climate change will impact humans, but it also covers a lot of information about effects on other species. Today we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Sunday, an assistant professor of biology at McGill University in Montreal. She studies animal responses to climate change, specifically focusing on how changes in temperature regimes are affecting the distribution of species across the world. Jen uses big databases that compile the physiological details from hundreds, sometimes thousands of studies, and then uses those details to make powerful statements about what animals are doing now in response to climate and what she predicts they'll do in the future as conditions change even more. Jen says that the effects of climate change are complicated. For instance, the two-degree increase mentioned in the IPCC report seems small, but it's a global average. Local climates will sometimes be drastically different than before. In other words, in some places or times of year, conditions will be really, really bad. First of all, the, the 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming, those are, those are going to manifest as very different amounts of warming in different places. So, so we know that with, one, with a global average of 1 degree of warming, we expect uh, much more warming, say, in the tropics or on terrestrial versus marine habitats. Um, but also, I mean, it really... Um, it's really about how temperature plays out through organisms, through animal and plants physiology, and how it plays out across the landscape that makes it um, makes these small, what sounds like a small amount of of temperature change, can be quite large in the biological or an ecological or geographic context. Like the scientists who wrote the IPCC report, Jen agrees that our ecological future is bleak and that we desperately need to reduce carbon emissions as rapidly as we can. On this episode, we talk with Jen about what climate change will mean for animal distributions and what those range shifts mean for their health and for ours. Jen says that climate change could cause more droughts in places like California and around the Mediterranean, but other areas like Central America and India could see more rain than before. 
That can mean more floods and landslides and hurricanes, but it could also mean improved conditions in some areas. For instance, around Australia, warming oceans are reducing the number of lobsters. But new ocean conditions are simultaneously helping some fish species to arrive and establish. The catch to climate change in most cases is that these apparent benefits won't necessarily translate into benefits for us. For the fish art just mentioned, it'll take time for the local fishermen to get used to fishing those new species. More importantly, just because a few species thrive in the new conditions, it might not really be accurate to see that as a benefit. It's ultimately interactions between plants, animals, and microbes within whole communities that underlie the function and stability of these systems. This time on Big Biology, we talk with Jen about the complex effects of climate change on animal distributions, including what she and others are doing about it. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So why don't we dive right in with a quick explanation, and probably it's the case that a lot of our listeners are familiar with the general concept of climate change. So, you know, you don't have to go off into all of the the weeds and the details, but if you want to give us a a brief overview of the major ways that the climate is changing, be a good starting point. Well, okay. We know we have um, already experienced increases in temperature. Um, increases in sea level rise, increased precipitation and drought, we are both experiencing and expecting. Um, So basically water showing up in weird places, places where it wasn't before. Um, And um, ocean acidification is is sort of a major threat uh, in the oceans. And then other other sort of more specific habitat um, changes, such as the thawing of the permafrost up north. So lots of change. So that, was, that was an interesting way to put it. So so is that sort of how it's represented now that water is showing up in places that it didn't really show up? And I guess that includes not just whether it's there, it's how much is there and when it's there exactly. and all those sorts yeah. of things. It's, yeah. both, it's both in the wrong places. We, it wasn't before and also unpredictable. Yeah, and so either not there when it should be there or, or too much water all at once. So, so of those various changes, you know, if you had to, to rank their relative importance, like which one's, which one's the worst and which one's, like, not, not as bad? I mean, some are just more worse for specific species, specific um, animals and plants, but the most pervasively um, threatening, I think, is temperature because uh-huh. that, that's one that is just universally going to affect everything. Yeah. Um, and then some of the others are, are much more sp- specific, although maybe quite um, quite dire, you know, like sea level rise is going to completely change the habitats for some species as well as humans. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's a little bit more specific in, in where it is. You know, one, one I've worried about, and I know you've, you've worked on this some, is ocean acidification. And mm-hmm. it, it seems insidious in the sense mm-hmm. that, like, we can't see it, right? And so mm-hmm. do you think people have less of a sense of, of that being a big deal? Yeah, that's exactly right. We can't see it. It crept up on us. It sort of all was discovered about 10 years ago, really, and, and sort of became... Um, in people's conscious, in scientists' consciousness, um, and the thing about ocean acidification is it's um, it's happening everywhere, and the we're still we're still trying to parameterize or just like get a handle on how how, how pH varies across ocean habitats 
now and mm-hmm. then how it's going to change in the future and what that means for organisms. So it's it's uh, crept up on us both in terms of we didn't we didn't know it was an issue and we haven't been measuring the physiological responses and the ecological responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that way, it's it's um, it's potentially scary um, just in that we don't we don't have the tools ready to go to to think about it. Right. Can you say something about the the various different ways that it it matters? I mean, if it's not something that usually hits the radar when when people think climate change, maybe the most obvious one is that it's going to affect you know anything with calcium carbonate. But what are the mm-hmm. what are the various ways that ocean acidification makes a difference? Um. So so number one is definitely the calcium carbonate producers. I think we've seen that. That so far we know it from sort of reviews of the physiological experiments that we've been doing in the last 10 and 15 years. Um, and uh, there's also sort of a um, slightly surprising effect on um, on plant life. So some plants we think are going to actually increase in their productivity with CO2. Uh, Others might be more stressed if they're ones that use calcium carbonate. Um, and then was the very surprising finding about fish behaviors. And so, uh, so, so the, the way that, uh, ocean acidification is thought to affect organisms that don't produce calcium carbonate is, um, that it's going to affect their ability to pH, to balance the pH in their tissues. And it's going to maybe be an energetic cost. Um, but what was a surprising finding was that the actual behavior of fish, um, was found to change in different pH environments. And so what I mean by that is um, some tropical fish were are found to not home, not to find their home coral reef. Hmm. Um, it's like they're confused cases, about where they are and... Exactly. In huh. some cases, in some experiments, they are swimming, instead of swimming away from their predator cues, the smell of their predators, they're actually swimming towards them. Wow, that's crazy. Um, and so, and then that has sort of kicked off a whole body of research into what's happening in the neurotransmitters of, of vertebrates and how the um, pH and the CO2 environment is affecting uh-huh. um those that bit of physiology that's really important for behavioral uh-huh. responses. Interesting. So, so before we get, get on to your own work, I just wanted to ask too about this. Um, so there was a, a new IPCC report that came out in October, uh, and it painted, I think, you know, an incredibly dire picture. Uh, it's like I think many of us scientists working in, in these areas know that it's bad, but this this report seemed to kind of step up the mm. the totality of the pressure and the direness of the of the you know. The future. So, what what was your reaction to that report? Um, yeah. So uh, it was definitely the the the, uh, the the more extreme responses that are being predicted, and um, really the focus on the difference between you know one degree of warming, one point five degrees of warming, and two degrees of warming, and um, what uh, a difference in scenarios that would make. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as just sort of how long-lasting the changes are going to be, even if we stop, um, even if we curb our emissions right now. Yeah. So, you know, so you, so you mentioned these degrees of, of warming, and I think maybe to the general public, you know, if you're sort of parsing it out between one and one and a half and two degrees of warming, like, you know, A, that doesn't sound like very much, and B, those seem like super fine differences among among the right. levels. So why, why is yeah. that a big deal? 
Well, um, so the, first of all, the, the 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming, those are, those are going to manifest as very different amounts of warming in different places. So, so we know that with, one, with a global average of 1 degree of warming, we expect uh, much more warming, say, in the tropics or on terrestrial versus marine habitats. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the, the first answer. But also, I mean, it really... Um, it's really about how temperature plays out through organisms, through animal and plants physiology, and how it plays out across the landscape that makes it um, makes these small, what sounds like a small amount of of temperature change, can be quite large in the biological or an ecological or geographic context. And so, you know, we know that um, with ectotherms, so cold-blooded animals and plants, uh, as we increase the temperature, they're their rates of living life increases exponentially. So they breathe faster, they swim faster, they die faster. Um, and, and it comes, and it, so it increases exponentially, and then it comes to sort of a sudden decline. Um, and that decline is a threshold that, um, that if you cross it, the organism, the, the, the population probably can't recover. Um, and so, um, so if we're, so we're both a small amount of increase in temperature both increases um, the it really changes the biology of the individual species and then if they cross a, a threshold where they can't recover then of course it has dr could have dramatic effects just on that species mm -hmm. and then if you add into that species interaction so what, as one species starts to um, decline another species may suddenly totally take over in an ecosystem and so just a small amount of warming could make a a, a quite a dramatic difference in what the landscape, what the what the life looks like in a given landscape. There's also just the the way that temperature um, changes across geogra geography, which is that if you you know a change of one degrees on a certain kind of landscape might mean that an animal, if if an animal can't tolerate temperatures just a little bit warmer, then a huge amount of their range might suddenly become intolerable. So, so are we seeing examples of this, of, of populations or species whose temperature tolerances are exceeded and they're, they're crashing down? I mean, is that, is that happening? Yeah. Okay. That is a good question. So, so we, we know most of our, our examples of species responding to climate change are either through their range shifts. So they're, they, they really are going locally extinct at a certain part of their range. Um, but then once you go down and you investigate the mechanism of that, it's usually not, it's not, not always that the temperature has exceeded their upper threshold for life. It's more often something a little bit more complex, like they could no longer um, spend so much time hiding from the sun, or they could no longer, or, or their, um, their habitat had disappeared and suddenly now they can't live there. Um, and so we study how temperature tolerance relates to species ranges um, as sort of a proxy for understanding what, what, how they generally can live across the landscape. Uh, but we know that really when you get to the edges of their distributions and where they can live and they can't live has a lot to do with the, um, 
other aspects of climate and the habitat itself, all of which are going to be affected by yeah, temperature. Yeah. So, so another way of saying that is that it's not it's not temperature directly necessarily on these organisms. It's it's effects of temperature on everything else about their habitat, including all of their sort of biotic partners, the things they That's eat, right. the things that eat them, their diseases, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, so so if one more one more question on the sort of background, you alluded to this when it came to the um, arts question about why temperature in particular. Um, in one of your papers, you or your colleagues or all of you said something to the effect of we need to be prepared for a world of universal ecological change. So the universal suggests that it's everywhere, but but where is it most a problem? I mean, so so I think you know you, there's a lot in the general press about uh, answers to that sort of thing. So if you want to say something to that effect, but then also maybe where isn't it a problem? And you alluded just a minute ago that some plants in the oceans might be doing better off in the case of acidification. Are there places where things might actually be better? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so so yeah, what what we say is that, and and what I would say again is that the the these ecological changes are are going to be pervasive. On top of that, they're they're a little bit unpredictable. They're quite unpredictable. Um, but I think that we can we can sort of look at global patterns of both um, how what sort of environments the species are already used to and make some predictions about where um, changes in temperature and precipitation are going to be more um, have a greater impact on on the ecosystems and then we can also look at look at the actual responses that we've seen in the last already 30 years we can look back and we can we can see patterns in how species are responding um, and so the prediction is that, or one general prediction is that tropical species, because they're used to a more, uh, a less variable environment, that they, um, they're, they might be more responsive to a little bit of temperature change, um, because they've already, they're, they're not used to variability. Whereas, uh, at higher latitudes, like up in, um, the, north part of the U.S. or in Canada, where we've got lots of, um, we've got huge seasonal variability, yeah, right. um, then we can expect that species are already able to tolerate great swings in temperature. Um, and right. so a small change in the mean and in maybe in those extremes, they will already be sort of preset They'll to do tolerate. Better with. So when you say responsive in the tropics, you mean responsive in, in the sense of probably more at risk for climate change, responsive in the not adjusting and adapting and behavior, behaving in a way that protects them, but probably bad news. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I, I, what I also mean is that they're, they will be forced to be more responsive. So if, you know, if they're, um, they're, they're going to be, I guess the word is they're going to, they're going to, they're going to have greater sensitivity. And so whether or not they respond is, um, is sort of maybe a separate question, but they will be more sensitive to those changes. But evolutionarily, they wouldn't have had, I mean, that's the argument. Evolutionarily, they're, the environment is so static that, you know, the, their capacity for response is probably not what the high latitude species would be able yeah, to do. That's the general yeah. prediction. Okay. And it's, I mean, it seems like you're also alluding to this, uh, idea that's been out there for 10 years or so that, you know, Hugh and Ray Huey and Michael Dillon and others have worked on. So, you know, the, the observation is that temperatures are changing faster at higher latitudes and slower in the tropics. And yet the tropical things, because of the sensitive sensitivity may still be more at risk 
from climate change than the high latitude organisms, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's okay. that's right. So it's, right. so there's the two separating the two ideas. One is the the amount of climate change they're going to feel, so that's the exposure, and the other is how sensitive, how mm-hmm. intrinsically sensitive they are to small changes, and right. that's their sensitivity. Right. Okay. You combine the two, and then you you make predictions. Yeah. Um, cool. It's also been sort of generally predicted, and it's bearing out in how species are responding, that ocean, uh, ocean living species are probably more sensitive. So they are also, um, they are, um, they're living, they're, 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 um, popu- their species ranges are sort of spread out across all of the temperatures that they can basically tolerate and as a result as you uh, you know, with the increases in temperature we've had over the last half century they have been moving more quickly than mm-hmm. terrestrial mm-hmm. species yeah. all right well let's let's get into that because um, you know you've written some some really great stuff about that over the last couple of years and sort of linking up species range shifts with temperature you've already said some about that but but maybe let's just start with uh, you know what is the link between temperature and species ranges uh, and, and what what's your approach to analyzing that right so so one of the things that uh, I, I've done is with some collaborators is we brought together all of the thermal tolerance data that we could find basically in the whole world so starting with ectotherm so starting with cold-blooded animals we looked at uh, what their cold tolerance was and what their heat tolerance was uh, and we, we just sort of brought all the data together and then we compared that to what their geographic ranges are mainly focusing on the latitudinal range so how you know what what breadth of latitudes that organism is found at. Um, and then, so, I mean, you expect there to be mismatches because of all of the ecological variables and habitat variables that we talked about. Um, but one of the things that really came out uh, of those of that study was that um, there was this really big difference between terrestrial and marine um, patterns of geographic distributions. Hmm. And was that, was that a surprise to you when you found that? Yeah, it was um, it was a surprise. I had already sort of I had already seen that just looking at the patterns of temperature tolerance, there's quite there's quite a difference. And so, on land, ectotherm's heat tolerance limits are actually quite similar all the way from the equator all the way up to very high latitudes. They all sort of toggle around uh, 35 degrees mm-hmm. uh, Celsius of their upper heat tolerance. Yeah, that's just kind of bizarre, right? Because you think of uh, very high latitudes being very cold. So why, mm. why aren't they, why don't they have lower temperature tolerance the higher you, you go in latitude? Right. Yeah. Well, they do have lower cold tolerance. So of course they can tolerate the really cold winters they're getting um, to a much greater extent. Uh-huh. Um, but they, they haven't lost that heat tolerance. And actually, so there's, there's different ways to think about it. You either think those high-latitude species either have really high heat tolerance that they don't need, they're just keeping it, it doesn't ever get that hot, or the alternative is that the more tropical species have, have maybe reached their limit, their evolutionary gross limit of, of what heat tolerance ectotherms are able to get, and so instead they are 
finding other ways to exist in hmm. those hot and climates. Is one other possibility mm. that the the high latitude ectotherms actually get really hot sometimes? That there's oh, sort of oh, of course, yeah, uh, right. You know. <laughs> that so that Maybe absolutely, and, and in fact, that's sorry, I, that that was hypothesis three, very yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Is that uh, <laughs> they are just a- actually perfectly adapted to the temperatures uh, that they experience, and. Um, that we know that at high latitudes, uh, the hottest temperature in the summer is really hot, you know, especially in cities or, you know, areas that are that have lots of um, radiative heat. Um, we know that that they can get really hot. And, and it was that was sort of pointed out by a geographer, by a famous geographer in the 70s, Robert MacArthur, who, who sort of just made this plot that showed if you look at the temperatures of cities across the world, the um, the temperatures are um, equally as hot as at high latitudes as they are in the tropics. So I was going to say I wanted to go back to um, this interesting thing about cold tolerance um, and especially. The survival of the, you know, so many of these species at northern latitudes. There's the really neat figure that you have in that paper showing that, um, you know, so many species are surviving in places that, you know, based on their thermal tolerance, they really shouldn't be. So, what's that about? How is that possible? Right. So you're referring to it, it's sort of um, that their their cold tolerance isn't cold enough to be living where they live. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so that that was a definite surprise once we plotted that out. Um, and what uh, I, we suspect there's two mechanisms there. One is that those species are um, going dormant in some way during the winter. And so what we measure as their cold tolerance is, is sort of this like active, their, their, their ability to stay active at that temperature. But if they can go dormant and just overwinter in a dormant stage without dying, then um, then that's a different kind of cold tolerance that that wasn't the kind that we measured or that that mm-hmm. we brought together. Uh, the mm-hmm. other is that um, it's similar to going dormant, but it's and it's associated with it, but it's the ability to find um, microhabitats that are not as cold as what the temperature records are showing. So so the mm-hmm. the climatologies are built from m- measuring temperature at one meter height um, across all of these. geographic locations Um, but you know we know that species can burrow under the snow way down to the to the you know at various depths and um, they can they can be much less cold (laughs) I would say (laughs) than um, than what the air temperature predicts so that's Hmm. probably why they're able to what looks like their ability to tolerate temperatures um despite their cold tolerance limits it's it's behavioral mechanisms that let them get through the winters has there ever been a systematic effort to sort of study that to see if there is this sort of that is disproportionately uh you know sort of robust in high latitude species that that, that i mean an actual comparison when you comp when you account for those uh hmm. those forms of tolerance that those species are sort of doing what they're expected or is it too, is what they're doing too diverse to really wrap your head around how that would be done? Um, so you mean you um, sort of... So you count up, count up all of the different ways that you can be tolerant instead of, you know, the sort of what happens to, mm-hmm. like you were saying, what happens to activity, what happens to metabolism yeah. at different temperatures? Um, 
Not that I know of, uh, but that's a great idea. Um, and so, yep. yeah, and so what I find often, you know, we, we go to a great effort to have these comparable metrics, um, and then <laughs> that way we can compare tons and tons of species, but then you're really always limited by um, what the metric actually was and whether that, you know, how relevant that is. Even though it was, gr- so so thermal tolerance limits, the reason why we are able to, to do these global comparisons is that people have been measuring thermal tolerance limits for 100, over 100 years right. and basically following the same methods. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is an advantage because we can do these global comparisons. But um, yeah, yeah. how relevant those <laughs> values are to what the species is actually doing on the ground, then then comes the interpretation. And so... Sure. So yes, if we if we had a beautiful data set about you know what um, if we if we had lots of information about uh, the, uh, the species what their behavior is in the winter and the summer what their um, you know what their microhabitat choices are um, and how and how that even how their choices change according to the um, mm-hmm. the climate they're experiencing. Um, we 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 now we have the models to be able to work really well with that information, but we just need that mm-hmm. information. For yeah, species. probably a little bit more expensive to get. I mean, if <laughs> a lot of it has to be either collected from natural history records or just brand new, and other stuff has been developing, yeah. investigated for a hundred years. It's not surprising you want yeah. to go with those sorts of data. I'm asking about that because. It was sort of a step one into questioning whether some species at the warmer latitudes mm-hmm. might be behaviorally more competent than they're often given credit. And so, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. thermal tolerance as measured this way, mm-hmm. there's actually a greater propensity to deal with temperature in the not so obvious ways as those data would reflect. I mean, is there any any validity in that way of thinking, or is it another one of those things? Go get the data first. Oh no, we have we have a lot more data. I'd say about how um, how species can behaviorally um, manage their body temperatures in different in different microhabitats in the heat because it's a really important mechanism um, absolutely well uh, if we just step step back and think about you know your your work on these issues you've you've taken this approach where you've used the the warm tolerance and the cold tolerance of species to estimate, how, how much they fill up their potential ranges in, in the world. So can you just tell us about that, that approach and, and how do you decide whether something is filling up or not or exceeding its potential range? Oh, okay, yeah. So we, um, we take these thermal tolerance limits that people have been measuring for, so, for the last century and we bring them all together and we look at the species distributions and from the species distributions we then ask of you know, we, we have lots of information about the temperatures um, that we expect each latitude and longitude to have experienced. And so we, we can go to our climatologies and ask, what temperature is it at the edges of this species range? Or what are the warmest and the coldest temperatures that this species must have to tolerate within its range? And then we can compare... Um, the temperatures that they experience at the edges of their ranges to the thermal tolerance that were measured in a lab using, you know, very standard physiological techniques. Um, And if we find that the species uh, geographic range uh, far exceeds its thermal tolerance, or just exceeds it in any way, then we call that overfilling. There's some reasons why we expect to see that. And if their geographic range 
is smaller than what we expect based on just its thermal tolerance limits, then we called that underfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I mean by that is they are overfilling or underfilling their predicted thermal range mm-hmm. based on physiology. Yeah. And, and so what, what kinds of things lead to underfilling of, of ranges? Oh, well, so, so indeed we found lots of cases of underfilling of ranges and our our basic ideas are that it might be when we sort of come in expecting that they might be limited by um, moisture limitation rather than temperature limitation, particularly, well, especially for the terrestrial species, especially. Right. Um, it may be that um, it's something to do with the time scale of their ability to adjust to the temperatures that they're experiencing relative to the time scale of the data that we're using. So these are usually some sort of averages in the climatologies of temperatures. And so that's not exactly at the scale that's most relevant for the organism. So there might be some mismatches. So that's sort of a technological So, so you mean like, like the temperature, the high temperature or low temperature on a particular day may be far more extreme than the monthly mean average that that's you, right. might, you might use in the analysis, right? Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, and then the, the, the final is the idea is that they might be limited by biology. Uh, uh, exclusion and uh, so maybe their habitat just doesn't extend that far and so even though they could tolerate more warmer or colder uh, climates they don't have the species associations that they need so that's either something like um, like uh, you know a forest or a, a kelp forest or, or a coral reef or um, or they there's a competitor that's keeping them out or uh, or their food resource just doesn't go that far and yeah. so that's what's limiting them instead everything else about ecology right exactly <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, like from that point of view I mean in some ways it's kind of amazing that just just focusing on temperature and temperature tolerances alone can give such a good match it's really so much, between right? you know, observe range and predicted range, right? Because I, I bet if you asked your average ecologist on the street, they would invoke a lot of things besides temperature as explanations for species ranges. Yeah, so. you, you you see that and you and you both do and you don't. Because I, I before we did the study, I came across many examples of the sentence that said species are at the large scale species distributions are limited by temperature huh. um, that that was a, a bit of a tenant that it, that is perpetrated and that and that biotic interactions they might be important at the small scale but at the very large scale um, they they can't really limit species and that it's um, yeah. and then if you took all the environmental variables of you that that could possibly limit a species it's probably going to be temperature that limits them uh-huh. and so um, and so and so, and yet this, this simple comparison hadn't been done. Yeah. Um, and so that's, um, that's one of, one of the reasons we did it. Yeah. So, so just following that thread for a second, sorry, Marty. Um, the, you know, one, one of your findings is that, <clears throat> that you get underfilling in terrestrial environments at the equator word side of, of ranges, right? And, and my recollection is that your argument was that, well, maybe that reflects especially strong biotic exclusion and at at the south end of say northern hemisphere species is that is that right that's one of our interpretations yeah um but there but i think 
Well, we've been careful to really acknowledge that there's other there's other factors. It, it's exciting to think that they are limited by biotic exclusion because that was something that yeah. Darwin postulated, right. and many have sort of um, re reiterated. Um, but it, it might also it might have to do with um, temperature variability being different at the warm end of the range, and with you know even just moisture limitation being important. Got it. All right. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask, do you, do your data? sort of give you a favorite hypothesis? Can you parse them to see if the species that aren't filling the ranges are a particular trophic level or in a phylogenetic group? Or, I mean, is there anything about who's not doing what they should that might hint at what the mechanisms could be? Well, yeah. So, so first of all, the on average, the terrestrial species uh, had much more, had on average, they underfilled the warm part of their range. So they weren't living as far down to the equator as we expected them to based on their heat tolerance. And they, um, they lived further towards the poles than we expected them to based on their cold tolerance. So they overfilled that cold end of their range. Compared to the marine species, which on average had um, filled, they, essentially they seem to be, um, their ranges are conformed by temperature. They on average fill um, that thermal range that we expect them to based on their temperature limits. Um, but then we could parse it out a little bit more than that. But then we started to run out of, um, I guess, data. You know, like you, you yeah, just need more. Yeah, replication. Not the yeah, right the species with yeah. all of the different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, so there okay. were some patterns with latitude. So as we were talking about before, the terrestrial species. If you go look at species that are higher in latitude, they do more overfilling at the cold range. So so they probably are even better at going dormant in the winter or finding um, microhabitats that get them through their winters. Um, that sort of so, thing. so if we just mm-hmm. focus on the marine side for for a second, mm-hmm. why why do they fit their predicted limits so well? Is it something about you know less local thermal variability in water than on land? Is that is that it? Well, I mean, you could just go through uh, all of the all of the. Uh, I, all of the reasons why terrestrial species might be underfilling um, at the warm end and overfilling at their cold end uh, kind of help you to, to to sort of guess why marine species are doing better. And so one is something to do with the the aquatic environment in general. And so their um, their the temperatures they experience are less variable. There's just on a hot day just the ocean temperature around the fish and the, or the, let's say a fish, for example, the marine organism either doesn't get as hot and as likewise doesn't get as cold in the winter. Um, and so because you take away the, because there's less variability, there's more opportunity for the species to fill its full, um, range as, as is predicted by the thermal tolerance that we measure in a lab. Um, there's also ideas that there are that biotic interactions that might be limiting terrestrial species are uh, they work differently in the ocean. They're not as species specific. So um, the idea that you know marine in, in an aquatic system, big things eat small things. It's less about the actual species type and more to do with mouth size and body right. size. Trophic and, levels and... That's right. And so any given species could interact with any... The, the, the interactions are based on body size, and so as a result, as because, say, a fish goes through all of these different body sizes, then they also interact with so many other species. So there's there's less chance of these sort of direct enemies or, or these really strong interactions. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the moisture limitation is not an issue in the ocean. And so that alone <laughs> could just be like, okay, well, on land, 
the temperature is not important because it really matters uh, the, the 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 humidity or the moisture level in the environment is is equally or more important. Um, and then we just that that could be why they fill their ranges so much more in the ocean. So it's a little bit um, it could be all three of those things. They're not mutually exclusive, but um, it definitely gives us. Um, some ideas to go out and test is is another argument that the latitudinal patterns and biodiversity are different on land mm. and, and in the ocean, right? So yeah. you know, there's this well-known ecological pattern in terrestrial systems of higher biodiversity toward the tropics, and, and that would sort of fit with the idea that you know maybe there's more potential species that could exclude your focal species just because there's so much diversity. Yeah, but yeah. is it the, is it the same in the ocean? So is yeah. it as biodiverse? Okay. Um, well, no, no. That that's absolutely one more idea on the list of potential uh. explanations. Which is <laughs> yeah. that um, that's so so one one of the Darwin's initial ideas for why biotic interactions are more important at the warm end of the species range in limiting their range. Um, it was what what he described was something closer to this sort of diffuse competition. So there's so many other species to compete with. And so as a result, there's no way you're limited by temperature. You must be limited by one of these other species. I see. So so that 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 diversity itself is as being sort of the mechanism is 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 a good one. Um, in the ocean, yes, the patterns of diversity, the sort of the latitudinal diversity gradient that we are really used to on land is much weaker in the ocean and in some groups it's flipped. So so it's a much more nuanced pattern. So so that could be there could just be less diffuse competition towards the tropics uh, in it. the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So uh, being a land-dwelling mammal bird researcher, uh, <laughs> I'm definitely entitled to an opinion about marine biology. Um, I, I wanted I wanted you to, to ask about another possibility, but but mostly as a, an opportunity to talk about some things that we haven't discussed yet. So you didn't say dispersal, and I would imagine that you know being able to move around and have your offspring experience so many different you know, although fairly consistent types of places would allow the the fitting thing to work a little better. Has that, I mean, is that reasonable? Has that, that been invoked before? Yeah, um, for sure. And, and so so the dis, the dispersal differences between land and ocean are, are one of the reasons among many that we, that we, ex, that probably explain why marine species are responding to climate change more quickly. Um, so they're, they're both, they're able, certainly able to fill their full potential thermal range because of their ability to disperse. And as a result, they're um, expected to be more sensitive as you change the temperature. They're, they're also going to respond more directly. Um, okay. But it doesn't explain why terrestrial species are underfilling their warm range no. boundary. Right. Um, so, right. so for that reason, it's not, it's not a mechanism that can explain that um, yeah. phenomenon. But it certainly is really important when we look at... Um, Okay, uh, I brought it up yeah. mostly to to uh, get us sort of well get your your thoughts on the role of, of evolution and mm-hmm. you know kind of well Art and I on the podcast I think two or three times now we've we've run into plasticity it's a it's a running theme mm-hmm. phenotypic plasticity All right. so how how are you thinking about plasticity and evolution in the context of you know this particular study or what you're doing generally mm-hmm. yeah okay so I think about it a lot um, both because. You know, I've in this particular study we were talking about, I just used a the thermal tolerance limit that was sort of maybe the best describer of that species, you know, as if it's a species trait. But we know that um, the it's it's a it's a plastic, you know, even thermal tolerance limits themselves have a plastic response. Uh, 
can be adjusted based on the temperatures that the species are used to. So, and then we might look towards the edges of the species range and find that you have local adaptation. And so they're, you know, what we're using is this whole species trait. Obviously, for lots of species, we expect it to be um, different as we look across the range that that its thermal tolerance will be more tolerable of the cold extremes at the cold end of their range. Um, <laughs> and so what I am doing to address that actually is um, we, I've got a working group going on where we're collecting thermal tolerance limits um, from as many populations as we can um, when, when, they are, when they are measured across species ranges. That includes up mountains and, you know, across ocean um, landscapes, and then um, and then along with that, bringing together uh, the acclimation response data that we can. So all of our examples, for as many of those species as possible, is when when we know that they have a very short term physiological adjustment to the temperatures they experience. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can bring that together. It's not about evolutionary potential into the future per se, but it, it's more looking at can we get a can we get a really good picture about of which species are more likely to have local adaptation and when can we parse that out into being due to a plastic response or a genetic response could we have predicted that based on uh, the life history of the species the dispersal ability of the species and the environmental variability that they um, are used to so any hints about mm. early results? Is, is it going to be possible to predict? <laughs> nope. And I, exactly I don't want you to scoop yourself to here on the podcast. but <laughs> No, I haven't beans. even seen the results. This is okay, like an so active working group. Yeah, we've got, we're meeting in April. So, oh, okay. um, right, we'll but I'm then. super excited. We have lots of data, it turns out. There's just tons of it. So um, so we're excited about, about, um, about that. And sort of the Cadillac data are, are the ones where for the same species, they were we some their thermal tolerance was measured across its range from multiple locations and then they also looked at the acclimation response for each of those locations and so we think we can really parse out short-term responses from long-term maybe genetic or maybe sort of multi-generational uh, um, responses that 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 aren't that aren't quick anyway yeah yeah mm -hmm. and we have could, lots of hypotheses but it's good yeah. <laughs> no results uh, we get to start somewhere can, can i just ask a, a method question too so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always impressed by the you know the, the size and extent of these data sets that you put together um and and you know your approach is often one of scouring the literature for you know every last study that's done uh thing x y or z so so how do you how do you do that how do you organize yourself and people to to produce these mm. massive data sets oh that's a great question um well the first one i did was during my phd and it was a side project to my actual thesis which was about evolution of reproductive structures of uh, sea stars. Uh -huh. um, and so as a side project, and because I was just motivated to have um, th some work that had greater applications in the climate change context, I, um, I just put hours and hours and hours into it. And I was completely disorganized, but I learned from the experience. And so I became more organized as I went along. Um, 
And and that was a, a very close collaboration with uh, with uh, Amanda Bates and Nick Dolby. And so we we they also kind of kept me in line and, and made sure that I was extracting the right data um, as we went along because you don't want to go back. Of course, we did go back to the papers a couple right. of times to right. extract more data. <laughs> um, since then, um, I have been on the other side of that where I'm sort of um, mentoring other people to be slogging through the data, or we've done some examples where we split it up um, among among a working group and everybody does sort of a hundred or two hundred um, papers and extracts yeah. those data. That sounds non-trivial. It mm. is non-trivial, and then <laughs> stitching those together is is complicated. So, yeah, in the end, I I, I feel I learn the most if I'm the person who goes through the papers. Um, but you know, yeah. that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask about um, climate feedbacks, and uh, so so you've argued in a number of your papers that. The, the shifts that we may observe in organisms themselves are going to feed back onto the, the, the process of climate change itself. And uh, that, that, at some level, is kind of amazing, right? That, that movement of individual species could affect something uh, about the global patterns of, of climate change. So can you just say, how, how can that happen, and how big of a deal is it? Uh, okay, well, it happens in a few ways. One is... Um, the sort of shrubification of the Arctic, and so we we because the 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 latitudes at which bushes or these little shrubs, these Arctic shrubs, can grow um, are getting higher and higher, and so they are able to um, fulfill their their full life cycles at higher latitudes, and so that's changing the landscape from being white where it was snow to being um, green, I guess, and brown. So so that is um, an albedo effect. And so what happens is the heat is, instead of being reflected from the snow, is being um, uh, concentrated uh, down onto the landscape. And it increases the temperature that's um, that the organisms feel at the landscape level. So, so Jen, we want to maybe uh, step back a little bit and talk about the why we care, be selfish humans, and, and talk specifically about how things are going to make a difference to us. So the, the really interesting, the, well, in my eyes, the novel part of your work is, you know, working specifically on the species distributions angle of, of climate change. So do you want to say something, maybe build up, if you can, a, a solid example about how it matters to people? And I'm selfishly, if this is the one you want to use, um, being an infectious disease biologist, there was allusion to malaria in particular. But if that's not your favorite example, you know, pick pick any pick any example you want. Oh, that's, that's fine. Pollination services or fisheries or, you know, anything. One of the best examples that I can think of uh, that I know about having worked in the system is uh, the changes in fish distributions that directly affect um, the people that, that fish those species. So whether they're fishing it for their subsistence or they're fishing it for um, into a into a, a fisheries industry. Um, what has been happening is, you know, one example is off the coast of Australia where there's been really substantially fast warming, about four times faster than the global average, um, 
the first of all, sea urchins have come in and they've modified the kelp forests um, by eating them. Um, and that's changed um, the productivity of lobster that live in those kelp forests, as well as various fish that, um, that use it as a nursery. Um, and so the, the lobster fishery is a huge fishery for that region and they're starting to, it's starting to decline. Meanwhile, um, there's been the arrival of many fish. Um, one is the yellow-tailed jack, um, and that is one that there was no existing fishery for in that region, but now the, a fishery has opened up. Um, and when I was working down there, the people that, that were trying to both manage the fisheries and also manage and sort of adapt to climate change were needing to put in a huge amount of effort to to decide and to talk to those fishers about how to change, you know, do you change a lobster fisher? Do you help them become a yellow-tailed jack fisher? Um, and so so really working with those people to, to help them to change how their fishery, uh, what they're actually fishing. But in that case, there's no border, right? So it's just they came down from the mainland of Australia into Tasmania. But there are examples... Um, growing of when these things happen across borders. So, you know, on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and Canada, we know that uh, there's been substantial warming in that region and fish distributions are tr moving upwards. Um, even just within the U.S., we have um, allocation rights to various states about how many fish each state can, state can sort of determining how many fish uh, each uh, fish, each state is allocated. Um, and um, it's suddenly becoming an issue that there's way more fish than there are allocation rates in some states, whereas in other states, there are far fewer fish than there are allocation rights. Um, and so that um, sort of that's starting to create some tensions. And then when you think about across borders, so across the U.S. and Canadian border, this has also happened in several um, uh, country borders in West Africa where um, fish distributions are crossing those borders and now it's an it's a international um, negotiation, basically. Um, and so those are impacting um, people financially, um, mainly, uh, and also creating lots of tensions that need to be worked out. So as a related question, and you know, you sort of uh, alluded to this, but I, I wonder if, if you, how would you respond to someone who said, you know, climate change is about it's about change. It's not about decline or you know, lots of bad things happening necessarily. Mm -hmm. And are there going to be silver linings? Are there going to be sort of winners and losers in in climate change? And mm -hmm. and for example, like you know, I could imagine someone saying. Well, uh, climate change is going to be good for ectotherms in North America because the northern range limits are going to expand northward and the southern range limits may stay the same mm -hmm. based on your analysis. And so, mm -hmm. you know, isn't that great? The, the total range size is going to be larger. Mm -hmm. so what, what do you say to people that, that take that point of view? Well, what I usually say is that and and what what i feel is that species you know for one thing yes there there are going to be increases of of um populations in some parts of the world and there are also going to be changes that might 
um, that might be positive for humans. It might, you know, give them more to extract from the oceans, more resources. Um, in some cases, we even expect maybe the biodiversity to increase. So there might be other ramifications about that from that. Um, but in the what we also know is that the species that are more likely to to adapt through shifting their ranges or even adapt through having just very general ecologies and they can kind of adapt to many things, those those are the species that are, are going to do well. And then there are, will be species that are either more limited by their specific habitat types or by their... Um, by their ecological interactions that just they can't all move at once and as a result those species lose out and so I think what we're going to have I mean there's going to be life it's going to some of it's going to move um, but we're going to lose both um, a lot of species probably but we're also going to lose the ecosystems that we know and that that provide us with both direct services but also provide us with that sort of um that a different level of happiness that we, that we that we associate with being familiar with our surroundings. See, I so, think that's one of the pieces that that sort of um, I don't know. Maybe I don't hear as much in the media when it comes to what's going to happen to this population or that population. You started off our conversation, you know, emphasizing the community level sort of effects, and it's the composition. So you know, when you use a Sorry, I can't. I can't avoid it. But um, use disease and especially vector diseases. Mm. If the mosquitoes move and the host community is different, then mm-hmm. who gets bitten and whether the viruses and other parasites circulate and spill into people and all of that. It's not so simple as focusing on the shifts and distributions of you know just random subset of species within there. It's what happens to the communities where the shifts all kind of come together. Yep, that's totally yeah. right. And so and so there will be both winners and losers of the species level, but as a result, will, there will be really potentially sweeping changes in the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those, in and in some cases, are, those will have direct impacts on people, either um, through something as direct as diseases or as indirect as um, as the the ecosystem services that that community provides um and in other cases those might you know it's going to happen and i i guess it may not there will be some changes that don't impact us but will result in a less diverse world um and we will be the cause of that and so that's sort of a maybe a, a sentimental angle, but one that, you know, sometimes when I, t- when I tell people, like my relatives, that yes, species are responding to climate change, they're moving, they're adapting, it's happening, and it's because of us, um, that, um, that sometimes impacts people just knowing that, that that's happened, um, regardless of the, the, very, the very real direct effects of, you know, changes in disease distributions and, and all of those things. Let me just ask about what um, what what you think is going to happen in the next ten or twenty or a hundred years, and and <laughs> okay. are are you are you optimistic or pessimistic about about the future of the ecological world? Uh, well, the 
the ecological world is going to carry on regardless of us. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think, you know, we're going to, there, there will be losses. Um, there will be species extinctions, I believe. Um, and there will be, um, changes in, in how communities are structured around the world that, that, that are going to affect those organisms. They're going to affect people. Um, and, um, but but attaching a sentiment to that is difficult um, because other than just the the feeling that that we caused that, um, I think that the bigger problems are are when we're gonna where we're gonna have people losing their you know their um, with with sea level rise how we're gonna have people losing their be actually displaced you know or. Um, the the actual species extinctions that where we will not see those species again. Well, and I mean, maybe just let me let me jump in here. I guess I'm I feel like I'm I'm generally an optimistic guy, but I I think I am pessimistic about you know what what's going to happen in the next few decades, yeah. in the sense that uh, it, it feels like climate change and shifts in species and shifts in you know, the hydrological cycle, which will affect how well people can, can do agriculture right. in different places, yeah. Yeah. is, is going to stimulate a lot of, you know, movement across borders. So immigration, immigration, a lot of political tension. And it, and it almost feels like, you know, climate change is going to exacerbate uh, all of these tensions that seem to be exploding in different places in the world right now. And, and so, you know, it may not be ecological collapse per se that gets us, but it's something that feeds back onto our, you know, our global economic and political situation in a way right. that uh, just leads to bad things happening. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're not economists, we're not political scientists, so maybe we have nothing to say about this. But I think, I think that's where my pessimism comes in. No, you're right. You know, uh, you're right. So, like, at a time when... We're, we know we're going to have, well, the population is continues to increase, the global population of humans, and at a time when we know through droughts and, you know, just the physical consequences of climate change, people are, and agriculture are going to be inf- affected. On top of that, we're redistributing the natural, the, 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 the natural biological communities, um, as well as you know the 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 ones that interact with agriculture, um, like pests, and so of course it's it's one more layer onto the onto not a great future, yeah. But as as far as the the animals and plants themselves, the organisms, I I think that um, they I I for them I'm an optimist. I don't know why. I know that there's there's potential for acclimation and adaptation. There's the redistributions. We are we will lose some, but they're not all going to go away. There's there's you know we're just going to have a very we'll end up with a very different planet. Um, but you know it's probably it's probably those really uh, realistically the the political um, and the food security. And the issues, the tensions between um, economies that are really the the most pessimistic part of our future that I'm mm-hmm. most pessimistic mm-hmm. about. Yeah, 
Yeah. You guys are really making this hard for me. I mean, you, you're sort of for- forcing me either to be an optimist or to also be a pessimist. <laughs> well, it's not dichotomous. <laughs> don't you don't have to choose. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, maybe one thing that can make somebody, I don't know if it makes me feel better about it, but I think it's pretty clear that humans are moving into cities more than they've ever been before. And so to the extent that we have a new opportunity to deal with landscapes in ways that we haven't done in the past, I mean, especially as far as species distributions go, if we're concentrated in, you know, less area than we used to be, that's a lot more places for everything else to be. Um, that doesn't get you around climate change and all of the things that's involved with it, but at least in terms of, you know, maybe we're, we're in a different and potentially oppor- uh, opportune scenario for interfacing with, you know, mm-hmm. the living world in a way that we haven't done before. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Urbanization has its own problems, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's people aren't going to be spread out to the extent that they are. And, you know, the, the human population maybe won't be growing at the same rate um, as it has been in the past. So hmm. perhaps if I can offer okay. a li- little bit of positivity yeah. there. <laughs> Grasping <laughs> at straws. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Right, I've seen, right. I mean, just, just off, drawing off that, I, I've seen also some hope, some um, you know, material for hope, which is um, restoration. You know, as if if we can if we can work our way out of some areas and actually restore them and make some sort of connected, fragmented as they are um, habitats um, and and help them to, to you know to to be restored back to something across which species can migrate and and mm-hmm. or live out their lives, then. There's there, that sort of would go with the urbanization. I would say, like if we can both be yeah. urbanized but uh, organized about what we do right. with the with the rest of the landscape, then yeah. we could leave some hope for future. <laughs> do you want to end art with uh, the the question that we try to ask a lot of people, Jen? What's your your craziest but not insane, some, somewhat plausible idea? for dealing with climate change. I mean, and, and by dealing, you know, sort of mitigating or managing or getting more useful data, however you want to take Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So, okay. My, my interface with dealing with climate change is definitely, um, getting more data so we can learn from it and, and predict change so we can, um, adapt either, pre-adapt, you know, or sort of get ready or, um, or adapt as quickly as we can as it occurs in our sort of human systems. Um, and so to that effect, I'm really interested in, in building networks of, of, um, very systematic ways. So, so what, what we're not doing well is, uh, is taking notes and and making really good observations of how species are responding across geographic landscapes and across time. So, so studies like the ones we've talked about um, are very opportunistic. We can go back in time and somebody did a latitudinal survey and they wrote down all the geographic distributions and now we know that they've changed because we redid them. Um, but I think that we can be doing way better than that um, by having um, very organized and systematic surveys um, across geographic landscapes and repeated frequently through time so that we can be essentially watching these clouds of species distributions and the communities that they make up. Um, We can be watching them change and not, not only in response to climate change, but just in just regular climate cycles even. And we can get a really good feeling for how species um, distributions interact with their, with the, the environment. 
And so, um, so one of the things that I'm kind of cautiously um, optimistic is about is the use of eDNA, um, in the, at least for marine systems, where we can just potentially be collecting buckets of seawater, extracting the DNA, and um, figuring out what species were in that region. Um, there's lots of sampling issues to be worked out, but it could be the start of a, of a global, um, organized, and systematic monitoring scheme where we suddenly just completely transform how we visualize species distributions and we we suddenly have these sort of clouds of species moving around through time um, wow yeah so you said you said eDNA environmental DNA right that's right yeah environmental yeah, okay, DNA okay. so it's like little bits um, of tissue you know poop and scales fish scales and gametes and all sorts of little bits of tissue that uh, float around in the water um, that are constantly being released by organisms uh, such that it, it's been shown that you can take a liter of seawater um, you know you have to be very careful and sterile um, and um, filter out all these little particles and detect you know to sometimes as as, as close as 95 percent of the fish species for example in that area that's amazing but that's a completely mm -hmm. different type of bird watching i'm not gonna lie i'm not sure that's gonna be as popular <laughs> as the binocular <laughs> it's pretty cool so, so are there are there organized groups that are working on doing this on a global scale there um not quite yet. There are people talking about this. Um, yeah. Mostly there are um, more regional or local groups. Right now it's really at a proof of concept stage. So people are working at the local scale to um, really ground truth the method and, and um, figure out what the best what the best sampling scheme is. It's basic, basic sort of ecology, what we used to do with transects, basically, when now we're doing it with these buckets of water. Because it's DNA such transects. an... That's right. And, and there's so many unobservable un, un, un processes, you know, these, the DNA decays in the water, it gets transported a little bit. Um, but by some like magic, um, the, the, the turnover time for eDNA in the ocean is often very close to one day is what the data are showing. And so it might be like quite a useful um, way to detect the species that are close by, not too far away. We're yeah, just within, there. Within a day yeah. of water flow, right? Yeah. That seems yeah. pretty close. So, so it might work yeah. out quite beautifully. The 2018 IPCC report urged governments to cut back on carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Such a reduction would require a monumental effort and would still only slow down climate change, not stop it. That means we're going to be living with climate change and its effects for the foreseeable future. And if we want to figure out how to deal successfully with new climates, we need to keep close tabs on how they are changing our world and take as many actions as we can to slow down or mitigate change, especially in the most vulnerable places. Jen says that by collecting particular types of data, we'll be better able to cope and better able to manage at-risk wildlife populations, our crops, and even our health. She said that many species do have the ability to adapt or acclimate to new conditions. Our future world will not look like the one we have now, and the job of scientists is to predict what's going to happen and to help society determine the best course of action going forward.
Thanks for listening to Big Biology this week. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a donation at www.patreon.com bigbio. We really appreciate those of you who are supporting the show now with dollars. But if you can't afford to give money right now, please tell your friends about us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or anywhere else you talk about podcasts. We really appreciate this type of support, too. Anywhere else you talk about podcasts? You mean around the water cooler? <laughs> what, water cooler? Jeez, man. <laughs> in, in the coming weeks, check in to hear us cover more on climate change, as well as intelligence in dolphins and whales, how cat ownership affects wildlife, how the National Science Foundation is supporting biology research, and the evolutionary underpinnings of the human obesity epidemic. And as always, please share your ideas for other topics and guests, and let us know what you think about the shows on our website, www.bigbiology.org, or your favorite social media app. Thanks to Matt Boyce for writing and production help on this episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage Big Biology's social media feeds. Thanks also to Steve Lane for managing our website. And thanks, too, to the University of South Florida's College of Public Health for their financial support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. We also had some music on this episode from Builder of the House. That's a project led by Big Biology listener Rob Simitile. We'll post a link to his Spotify page on our website so you can check out his music.